Sony. Welcome to another episode of Canadian Common Sense. I'm Lewis in British Columbia, and today I have a special guest. I have the MP for Central Okanagan Similkameen Nicola. It's quite a mouthful. And uh, uh, which he uh, was re-elected in, in this previous election with 48% of the vote. MP Dan Albus. Yeah, thanks, Welcome. Lewis. Appreciate you having me today. Yeah. Uh, you've been on the show once before. It was two years ago. And... Um, you were our first guest, and we've had several since, and we're very happy to have you back. Well, it's always nice when people want you back. Yeah. <laughs> um, first off, I just want to start with just uh, saying that yesterday, uh, Canada lost a uh, immediate, like, titan. Um, Christy Blatchford died at the age of 68, and that's, uh, I think she was one of Canada's premier uh, media reporters. And uh, she's going to be a great loss. No, absolutely. Uh, Christy not only was a compelling writer and uh, that she felt very, very much, very strongly about what she wrote about, whether it be uh, covering the rights of victims, uh, you know, writing about the challenges of the military and veterans. Um, there are so many things that she's done, but, you know, really for me, she threaded the needle on two areas. Her writing was very raw, but also incredibly accurate. Yeah. Very precise. So, you know, everyone needs a spokesperson to defend on, on their behalf. And I don't think anyone can think of anyone better than Christy Blatcher. No. And, and I mean, she, and she's one of those ones that, uh, was a stickler for facts and for, uh, and for truth. And uh, she is going to be greatly missed in Canada. Um, let's start off with, uh, well, Justin Trudeau was once again found in violation of uh, the ethics code for not reporting his uh, financial interests uh, on time. Uh, I think there was 13 MPs that, that failed to meet the deadline and, and Justin Trudeau was one of them. Um, these ethics violations seem to be a uh, becoming a common theme. Well, you know, you always want to give someone the benefit of the doubt. The problem is for the prime minister is first of all, this these rules apply to all members of parliament and senators. Yeah. Um, but the enforcement on this specific part is 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 just for members of parliament. Uh, there's a separate body that examines senators. But you know, these requirements are there so that Canadians can have trust that we are not going to personally benefit from our time in office. And so uh, when you have multiple cases of where someone has either has uh, not followed the law um, and, and just simply can't make a filing, that's questionable. And given the prime minister has had these kinds of run-ins with the uh, commissioner before, um, whether it be uh, a jaunt on, on to Billionaire's Island or... Uh, with some of the other ethics issues that came up during the SNC, um, this prime minister cannot afford to lose any more credibility on the ethics front. And unfortunately, um, he's done it here. So, you know, I believe quite honestly that um, individual MPs should be, uh, you know, ultimately responsible to their constituents. And so I usually don't uh, co uh, comment that much on uh, those kinds of things. All I will simply say here is, look, you know, the leaders of our country must be seen to be acting in line with the highest expectations of office, including ethical lines. 
And so the prime minister, I think, has really got to look long in the mirror on this one because this is basic accountability measures. Yeah. And now speaking of questionable decisions and and uh, uh, and that by the prime minister, um, we have seen last year where he uh, where the, the federal government awarded Loblaws $12 million for new fridges uh, under a uh, uh, climate action uh, grant, which I mean, I think everybody can agree that Loblaws doesn't need $12 million to buy fridges. They have $12 million of their own they could use to buy fridges. And if anybody was going to, uh, who should be on the receiving end of a grant such as that, it should be smaller outlets that can't afford to be buying uh, uh, brand new fridges and, and equipment like that, for, that that's more efficient. Um, and since then, he has. They have also awarded Mastercard with fifty million dollars to set up an office in Vancouver. Again, another company that doesn't need taxpayer money. They get enough of Canada's of Canadians' money every year in interest payments, uh, to the tune of I believe it's one point three billion dollars every year from just Canadians. Um, what does this say about where, how the decisions are being made on, on issues like this? Well, look, you know, I've spoken to liberal members who thought it was inappropriate as well. Of course, they won't say it publicly, but you know, it comes down to basic judgment on these kinds of files. And, uh, you know, when, when you have as a government, uh, given large, we already have to remind ourselves that in the fall economic update, uh, just before the uh, uh, last election, so that would have been 2018, they gave, uh, a, you know, accelerated um, capital cost allowance, in effect, depreciation, uh, so that they uh, people could write off investments in their business. And so not only are taxpayers going to be paying for Loblaws for something that, as you said, it's a profitable co a company, they have these capital, uh, you know, uh, investments that they make from time to time, they will uh, benefit from having more energy efficient um, facilities because they'll see their bills drop and that means more profit for them. And they are getting de accelerated depreciation that frees up cash flow in addition to a grant. And so this is, you know, the, the question is, is, is that, you know, what, what are the liberals thinking when they do these things? Um, now, when it comes to MasterCard, I think it's always important to know that MasterCard itself runs the network. It doesn't run... So when people make a payment for uh, or get charged interest on, on their payments, that goes to the banking, the financial institute that they deal with. But MasterCard runs the grid. But you know what? These kinds of investments oftentimes will be made by these companies because it's in their best interest. And they are attracted to Canada because we have a, um, a very well-trained workforce, very highly educated. Um, and, you know, people want to be there. So, you know, when, when they gave money to BlackBerry, $40 million, the CEO said to a CBC reporter who asked, did they actually need the money? CEO said, no, we're going to be doing this anyway. So this, again, I, I think comes back to judgment, is why are the liberals continuing to give money in terms of grants 
in terms of accelerated capital cost allowance, in terms of uh, all these kinds of things that ordinary Canadians do not get. And uh, again, uh, we can look at their approach to carbon taxation. There are coal-fired facilities, uh, coal-powered, I should say electrical coal-fired um, uh, facilities in New Brunswick that have received a 95% plus exemption from the carbon tax. While someone who's struggling to heat their home, uh, a senior, uh, or uh, someone who's just simply trying to get to work, oh, just has, families. has to pay the full load. Yeah. And so these are the things when Canadians look at it, they say, why, am I, why are things being made tougher for me, and yet so many things are being given to these large corporate interests? And I, I think it comes back down to is, is that liberals uh, identify with, uh, you know, large corporations more than they do with, you know, uh, Fred and Mary. Yeah. And I mean, that, that the carbon tax when it comes to uh, individual Canadians and their heating bills, such as uh, natural gas or electricity, those uh, carbon tax charges on our bills are actually higher than the charge for the electricity and the gas used because they're charging it on the storage fee, the transmission fee, the uh, all these other fees that, that are charged on there as well. And in the end, you're paying a higher carbon tax than what you actually paid for gas. And it's because, I mean, I can show you my bills there. My carbon tax is double what my electric or what my gas charges. And it makes no sense. And I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, uh, affordability in a country where we have to heat our homes and in much of the country for more than half the year. And for a lot of the country as well, like Southern Ontario and Quebec and, uh, and especially here in BC, we need to cool our homes in the summer because it does get very hot. Um, and they're putting extra costs on us and I mean it isn't just on our bills because uh, the carbon tax has affected uh, the cost of our groceries it has affected the cost of our clothing it is it has affected the cost of virtually everything that we buy and but there was an Ipsos Reid poll that came out here just a few days ago and we talked about this on our show yesterday where they said that 29% of Canadians are broke that once their bills are paid every month, they have nothing left. And another 19%, a further 19%, that are within $200 or less of being broke every month. They cannot afford an emergency uh, uh, cost, such as a car repair. Um, and that brings it up to like 48% of Canadians. And that's, and that's not all because I mean, once you get beyond $200 within $200 of being broke, there's, you know, people at $300, $400, $500 that are within that range of being broke. So the numbers are actually a lot worse than this Ipsos Reid poll even shows. And this carbon tax is making life even more unaffordable for Canadians who are already in a crunch who are already under the under the uh, the hammer from uh, bill collectors and and from the just the cost of living.
No, no, you raise a, a number of good points. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just recently been reported in Black Locks, and I just pulled the article up here. Uh, this is uh, from their February 12th, uh, 2020 edition here. Uh, Fed fears a green recession. Now, I'm only just going to read a small line on it, but basically they're, they are uh, quoting uh, the superintendent of financial institutions, Representative Jeremy Rudin, who was in Vancouver to speak uh, to insolvency lawyers. And so on the topic of bankruptcy and insolvency, uh, I find his comments really interesting. And he actually talks about transi transition risk and uh, how going to a low to no carbon economy can have impacts on the financial industry and the economy. So what he basically says here, and I'll say, the first round in the impact of the transition on those industries that will see their activities and quite possibly their entire business models strongly and directly disrupted. Industries such as fossil fuel production, electricity generation, and transportation are likely to be on this list, and there will surely be others. The second round of transition risk arises as the decline in profits and employment in the disrupted industries ripples through the broader economy, end quote. So, you know, uh, he also points out in the article uh, that there's not very good information for Canadians to be able to know what the costs will be of some of these policies. And look, the Liberals are talking about a, a clean fuel standard. They're talking about, uh, you know, other 60 other different measures besides the carbon tax that they're going to be throwing into the economy, which will have a material change. I gave a speech to a Summerland, to the Summerland Chamber of Commerce yesterday, and uh, I asked for a round of hands of people who feel that Canada should, uh, you know, do uh, its part in, in, in dealing with uh, global emissions. And um, I would say probably 80% of the people put their hands up. Then when I asked how many of them are willing to pay large costs to be able to fulfill this, only one individual raised their hand. And so I, I think that if, uh, you know, these are questions we have to, to, to grapple with. Um, you know, we need credible policies, but we also need to have proportionate policies because Canada is an open economy. Uh, we are a free trading nation. And if our domestic citizens, you know, can't afford to live, um, you know, I also imagine that's going to also hit our exports. So this is a multifaceted issue. And as you can see, um, the government's response to these things are, you know, fund large corporations with grants that they have even said they don't need um, to raise prices uh, in various ways through their different policies and without giving Canadians uh, the knowledge. We see bankruptcies on the rise, high since the uh, financial crisis of 2007, 2008. Yeah, which makes it the second highest in Canadian history. Yeah, and, and so you would just say, uh, you would ask yourself, is the government, um, you know, are these policies uh, going to be able, you know, are Canadians going to be able to cope with them? I think uh, largely in Western Canada, we've said no. Um, and I think the election poured that out. Well, I think, and as and as well, I mean, you were mentioning the bankruptcies and, and insolvencies being, you know, the second highest in Canadian history, and we're not even technically in a recession yet. No. Um, well, certain parts of the economy are. I, absolutely. I would, if we go to places in Alberta, I will tell you that the pain is real. It's And it's not just Alberta or Saskatchewan. BC is suffering as well. Um, it, and there's no, the media isn't even really talking about it. Um, and it doesn't seem like anybody's really talking about it, even our own our own provincial government uh because but lumber is 
like our logging industry is is failing in a big way right now. Uh, I mean, we've got large sawmills that are shutting down all over the province. Uh, most recently, uh, the one in Kelowna, which many of their em- employees reside in your riding. Yes, um, I actually I actually met with the Interior Loggers Association yesterday, and uh, in the, they're getting quite concerned. Uh, you know, they've asked government, both provincially and federally, uh, to help uh, deal with some of the challenges. And, uh, you know, that's the thing is the government seems to want to stand up for some things, but not others. Yeah. You know, they, uh, they, they want to be at the, uh, at the ribbon cutting, yeah. uh, but not necessarily at the, uh, the lineup uh, of people that are looking to get EI. Now, how much of this has, has something to do with uh, not having a softwood lumber deal with the U.S. for over four years? Well, you know, there there have been some recent changes uh, to that, and um, you know, I, I think we have to reflect though that the uh, softwood lumber tariffs create an uncertainty on the uh, on the Canadian side, um, because you know you have this extra cost, um, and when I speak to CEOs, they tell me that they're quite concerned because if you look at the Americans, um, you know, we have Canadian companies that are exiting the British Columbia forestry side, but they're not leaving forestry. They're now investing in places like Louisiana, mm-hmm. where they're, it's a right to work state. Uh, they have no carbon tax and they have supply and they have government policies that uh, work well for them. I've also heard concerns from, um, from some of the, the higher end value uh, wood chain side that Eastern Europe, where you have you know, rich um, uh, conglomerates that are investing heavily in eastern, uh, uh, eastern former Soviet bloc countries that have an abundance of labor. They're putting, you know, state-of-the-art uh, mills in, and they're able to get, you know, fiber supply uh, at much lower rates. And they are literally going neck-to-neck with some of these companies and uh, it, it makes it incredibly difficult when you have the, 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 the constant stream of regulation. And uh, I was at a meeting recently with the forestry industry, and they put on screen the list of every federal and provincial and regional uh, regulation that they were under. And it was, uh, absolutely, I was absolutely blown away with the amount of regulation they have. And if you compare that regulation to other uh, jurisdictions, it's far more simple. So in Canada, we have to start asking ourselves, are we prepared to compete? Are we prepared to, um, you know, roll up our sleeves and, and say, okay, we are, we are going to, you know, be competitive on our regulations, uh, as much as on taxes, because quite honestly, if, uh, we don't start seeing governments, you know, speaking with the United voice that they're going to address those concerns. Um, then we're going to be behind, and and the uh, the um, business council, and that's the the, the group established um, business council of Canada. They have um, all the major Canadian companies, and they've highlighted that regulation uh, is is harming their interests. We're not getting infrastructure built so we can get our products to uh, to market. Um, and, uh, you know, they are concerned about, uh, how Canada will be soon crowded out in, in the fight for capital investment, in the fight for, um, you know, business 
uh, to be won. That's that's a problem. Well, and we've seen that uh, over the past four years. Uh, there's been a massive exit of foreign investment from Canada. Uh, we see it especially in the oil sands where almost, uh, I believe it's the majority of uh, foreign owned oil companies have all sold their interests. Um, they're, but this is happening across Canada in all industries uh, where foreign investment is, is leaving the country. And this is, and, and a lot, I believe, you know, a lot of it does, it really does come down to uh, their uncertainty of government regulations and whether or not projects are going to get built um, because it doesn't seem like there's any rhyme or reason why some get approved and why some yep. are, uh, are rejected. Well, I, I think you have no better example right now on deck than the uh, tech um, frontier mine in Alberta. You know, it's gone through over a decade of process. You know, the uh, CIA review found that it was, uh, you know, that it, it basically it was in the public interest to have. And quite honestly, it has First Nations support. And so when we look at, at uh, you know, some of the economic impacts, um, you know, there's the direct, obviously the direct jobs. So, um, you know, in construction, and then after, there's at least 2,500 jobs that will be maintained on just this one project alone. And tech, uh, as you know, has, has, made, uh, has won a lot of environmental sustainability awards. It intends uh, to significantly redu reduce its uh, carbon use you know, over the next 20 years. Um, but again, this is the perfect opportunity for the federal government, Mr. Trudeau's government, to show that it understands the signals that it has sent previously uh, to foreign direct investment and even domestic uh, producers. That, um, you know, so that they can build some stability in the system. If, if a project goes through a successful CIA review and uh, has First Nations support, um, all the while um, the encouragement of the Alberta government, you know, to see it through, you have to ask, you know, are you part of the problem or are you part of the solution? And uh, that's where I, I think the government has to step up and see this in, in the public interest. The Prime Minister did this before with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I gave him credit that when he approved the pipeline, he did a press conference, he answered questions, he gave Canadians the rationale as to why the government felt it was in the national interest. And I publicly supported him and have since done that. Because at the end of the day, we need leaders to, to see not just the short term, but the long term and uh, the importance of building not just regulatory certainty, um, but building better relationships with First Nations. Now, even though he, they did come out and they approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, which I think we can all agree was the right decision, uh, the company that owned it, which was uh, Kinder Morgan, did not feel confident that the government was going to be supportive through the construction of it because they knew they were going to be facing protests. They knew they were going to be facing challenges in getting it built. But by, by the provincial government of BC also. Well, I think it's yes. important to note. Yes. This is not, <laughs> you know, when, when you have a government that has publicly said that they're against, you know, you doing what you're doing and you have 
you know, between the Alberta government, the provincial government of British Columbia and the federal government, there's at least 200 different um, legislative uh, acts that apply yeah. with a whole host of perm or per permitting that's required, tens of thousands of permits. Um, I can understand two things. I can understand, number one, uh, why Kinder Morgan did not feel that the uh, federal government, you know, had the fortitude or, or had the, the ability to... Uh, and give them the, the, the certainty for their investors. Uh, but I also will say this. Look, uh, the parliamentary budget office uh, did a review of the uh, purchase of the existing um, pipeline and found that we paid the high end of it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not going to, uh, you know, uh, give, you know, these guys, you know, they knew, Kinder Morgan knew that they had the federal government over the barrel, literally. Because the prime minister had uh, decided to, uh, it was not in the public interest to continue with Northern Gateway. They did not challenge the, the National Energy Board uh, when the new panel uh, that was brought in after uh, the previous panel had to resign over uh, issues with Energy East, conflicts of interest, or potential conflicts of interest, uh, when they established that uh, Energy East would be subject to a whole host of, of considerations that were not put in place by law or applied by the National Energy Board to any other pipeline, uh, and so they uh, they didn't they didn't rein in the regulator for for exceeding its mandate, and that project died. Keystone Excel, uh, Mr. Obama, a few days after Mr. Trudeau was was brought in under this prime minister, um, vetoed the 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 pipeline, even though his own State Department said that it wouldn't tangibly increase emissions. Uh, and Mr. Trudeau and Premier Notley at the time said nothing. So, you know, the Prime Minister put himself in this position where the company had ultra leverage. And to be fair, the, the company had no faith that the Trudeau government would see this project through. And uh, if we see some of the protests that are happening in British Columbia right now on the coastal gas link, for example... You can see how when a government, you know, you know, does not um, or creates the sense that uh, blocking access to the Legislative Assembly is okay, um, blocking that highways. blocking highways is okay, that's a terrible message. Yeah, and we've now, got in Ontario where they're blocking the Via Rail line yep. between Toronto and, uh, and Montreal. And, and, and you know what, I, to, to be fair... Uh, you know, the, uh, the premier did say that the, uh, while protest, uh, you know, should be done, uh, you know, it should be encouraged in Canada. And I think all, all, anyone who believes that Canadians have inherent rights, it's important, Absolutely. but it should not inhibit the rights of others or put yeah. the safety of, of, of others at risk. And so I think, um, you know, we need to have, uh, you know, it's, it's more important than ever for us to, as elected officials to be talking about how our system works, how the RCMP or other police forces, you know, uh, must enforce the law as they see it in the name of public safety. And uh, that when a court order is given where everyone who is interested can, can make their arguments can do that, that once that court that court, um, you know, has given a ruling that it be followed through. Um, and, and again, we, we've seen here in Canada that courts, um, have increasingly, um, bit, you know, opened and defined what uh, Indigenous 
um, rights are and how governments need to proceed, you know, in terms of consultation, in terms of meaningful dialogue on these issues. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, we need to have lawful processes that everyone can can live yeah. and and, uh, and prosper by. And, uh, you know, that's where I think, um, you know, we need to be hearing more from elected officials about how the system works uh, and, that, and to encourage people um, that if they do have concerns about particular public policy issues, to get involved with the democratic process, to protest, but again, legally, yeah. uh, and to, uh, you know, change people's uh, minds uh, through free, you know, an open dialogue. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, the coastal gas link uh, went through probably the most comprehensive uh, uh, talks with uh, First Nations of any pipeline that has been built in Canada. Uh, I mean, they, they've even said it, it, it was the uh, consultations were, were very, very thorough. Uh, they got all the First Nations elected chiefs and councils to sign on to an agreement uh, where the pipeline runs through their traditional territories. The only uh, problem now is that the uh, hereditary chiefs. Some hereditary for, chiefs. For the uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, nation are saying, well, we didn't give our approval to this. And I just got to wonder where, where does this stop? Because uh, the chiefs are claiming this, but then if it, like the hereditary chiefs are claiming this, but hereditary chiefs, uh, as explained to me by a good friend of mine who is a full, full blood first nation is that they don't have any power. They have respect and they, yeah, have, I would say moral power. Yeah. But yeah, they, they can but, voice concerns and, but, but they don't have any power, uh, that the elected chiefs and council have though. Yeah, and, yeah because they were elected to represent the people. Uh, now, I mean, I don't agree with everything that my provincial government does or signs on to agreements. I don't agree with those. I, mm -hmm. I, not all of them, right? I agree with most of them. I don't agree with all of them. Same thing federally. Um, but that doesn't mean I can hold up the process because I'm not an elected leader. Right. So where does this stop? Because not all First Nations, I mean, to think that First Nations all think in a mono block way of thinking is ridiculous. So there's always going to be people who are opposed to it. There's always going to be First Nations that are opposed to a gas uh, line running through their traditional territory. But where does that stop? Where, where do we say, OK, enough's enough. Yeah. Your well, leaders have agreed to this. You know, and take and, it up with your leadership. Yeah, and 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 this is the, the challenge. And and again, you know, not not being from the air from the area, uh, not knowing uh, the uh, the different aspects of hereditary versus elected. I you know I'll just make a couple of general observations. You know, first of all, um, we live in a democracy, and it's a constitutional monarchy, which means that people can have their say on who is who represents them. The governments will then be held accountable for those decisions, but they are also bound by the Constitution, which means there is court oversight. And as we've seen in Canada, there has been a number of times where First Nations brought up legitimate concerns 
that went through a court process, and uh, these are onerous processes, but ultimately they help the public, they help elected officials, they help everyone to understand what the roles and rights are in particular situations. And, you know, again, that's where, as Canada is a democratic rule of law country, we have these uh, established legal processes to ensure that everyone's rights are respected. And that's where I think that, you know, all elected officials, whether they be a member of parliament or an MLA, you need to communicate with their constituents, you know, on how to engage meaningfully. And uh, again, barring people from, from, you know, whether they be media or whether they be elected officials or the public from hearing the throne speech, you know, from hearing what their government uh, plans on doing on their behalf, I, I uh, you know, by physically blocking with almost the sense that there's a threat well, there, uh, and that, the, and that, there are reports that there were government staffers that were injured yeah. trying to enter the building. That's not okay. That's that's not how we do things in Canada as a group. Uh, you know, we have protections to ensure people have rights. And there is also a collective right of everyone. And so I would just go, I, I would just simply stay back to it that we need to, again, um, hear legitimate grievances, encourage them to put those grievances through either the democratic channels, right, where they can lobby and they can uh, argue and have town halls, uh, you know, and that's a very positive process. Or um, they can take it to a court. And that's exactly what has happened. Coastal Gaslink went to the BC Supreme Court. The BC Supreme Court said, based on what we heard from all parties, here is what we are going to do in terms of an injunction. And now the RCMP has a uh, duty to fulfill that. This is not meaning that, uh, you know, the, you know, the concerns that people have aren't, aren't, uh, valid. It just means that, you know, that the company also has a right to see this work be done and to do so without the threats of intimidation or, um, to be blocked. And, uh, anyway, like, like I said, this is a, it's a complicated thing, but the same part, in a democratic country, that's how we deal with things. And I think that one of the things that has made this even more complicated is that uh, British Columbia has recently passed UNDRIP uh, into law. Uh, it's it's going to take a while before it is fully implemented, um, but they have passed it into law now, and it's the UN Declaration uh, for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, I thought it was a little reckless to pass it as is, uh, because it doesn't clarify what, um, uh, consent actually means. Um, and, uh, to, to have big energy projects or infrastructure projects be, uh, built in the, in the province of BC. Uh, I don't think that it, it's, it's very clear on what those indigenous rights really are. And I think that uh, it's, it's going to cause problems because nobody has clarification, nobody knows what it really means. And it's, it's, it's almost like they're saying, we're just gonna leave this up to the courts to deal with and, and figure it out for themselves. Well, and to, to a large extent, the courts have. Uh, yeah. you know, and again, this is, you know, in the United Nations, uh, you know, it's it's a mixture of different parties that that come together and 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 craft these statements, 
Um, but the Canadian context is quite different. Yeah. 660 uh, uh, plus or minus a few First Nation communities. Uh, you know, uh, that that is significant. And again, you raise the, uh, the issue of consent. Well, you know, if you have, uh, these are the challenges for government, is, is that if you have the consent of, of First Nation uh, elected ch chiefs that have, uh, you know, been consulted heavily with and acquiesced that uh, project go forward, but maybe there's one uh, that doesn't, or maybe there's groups uh, that are not elected that have concerns, does that create where there's a veto process? And I, I think under Canadian law, no. I, and I also do think that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould gave a speech to the Assembly of First Nations where she pointed out that simple legislation that would say, you know, that we're going to honor uh, UNDRIP in everything we do is very difficult because there is laws that are passed by the government, that's statutory law. Then there is the constitution. Then there are treaty rights. Then there are... Um, uh, questions that have been already, you know, looked into by the courts and have been defined in Canadian law. And so the complexity that goes along with these things is massive. And uh, I, I, I think that um, probably that the bill was probably rushed. Um, I'm not a provincial member. I did pay attention to some of the uh, dialogue. I, I note that uh, uh, former First Nations uh, Chief Ellis Ross, who now serves as a the member of the Legislative Assembly for his area, um, spoke very, very eloquently and raised a number of questions. And uh, to me, I think those questions have force. And I think that um, it will be very difficult for, um, for the province uh, to, and it's really up to them. It, it, the province needs to communicate how it sees um, its legislation and how it impacts uh, current processes and you're absolutely right. This is going to lead a lot more reinterpretation by courts that may be counter um, uh, to much of the work that has been done by First Nations to um, in Canada in terms of defining those rights uh, through the court process. Yeah, because I mean, it wasn't long after the uh, uh, that the bill was passed that the uh, BC Human Rights Commissioner called for the UN to intervene in Trans Mountain. And yeah, no. So I, I think I, I think that there was a, um, a committee that had called on the Canadian and provincial government uh, to specifically not proceed with Site C, Coastal Gas Link, and in the Trans Mountain project. Um, but when the the chair was actually contacted, it turns out that uh, he did not he was unaware oh, okay. of the fact that uh, that there was First Nation support for Coastal Gas Link, for example. And so he, he then said, well, it's, I, you know, we're not an investigative body. And so for um, the provincial human rights commissioner, um, I, I listened to her on a, on a radio program. She seems like a very uh, competent person. Um, but again, to uh, be calling for provincial processes, uh, whether they be through the court or through uh, have been found past, uh, it seemed to me a bit of an odd fit. Mm -hmm. You know, that being said, this is what's great about Canada is we're an open and free country. Um, but, you know, we have to make sure that um, people's rights are respected. And that means 
it goes both ways. I respect someone who wants to, you know, protest or, or discuss these issues in a town hall or with myself. Um, but there's also there also needs to be um, the awareness that other people have rights as well, including the aspirations of uh, those elected chiefs for their people. Mm-hmm. And oh, uh, and so that's where I think people, uh, especially again, I go back to my point that elected uh, officials should be um, explaining the system, should be addressing those concerns, uh, and talking about how how people can engage meaningfully with the system. You know, again, you know, we are a country that believes in the rule of law. Um, We talk about it, how important it is internationally. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to show that we walk the talk here at home. Yeah. And and I mean, I'm always I'm always saying that that I may not agree with what someone says, but I will defend their right to say it. Yes. Uh, Because as soon as we start uh, limiting free speech or censoring free speech, we are no longer a free country. Because I think the single most important right that, that we have to keep a country free is free speech. Because if you're not allowed to criticize government, then you're no longer in a free country. And so, yeah, I, I might not agree with something somebody says, but I yep. fully defend their right to say it. Um, now... That brings me to the Federal Liberal Caucus uh, with regards to Tech Frontier. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got, from what I've heard, about 75% of the Liberal Caucus is uh, against it. Uh, And mostly for political reasons, because they're afraid of the backlash that they're going to be facing back east in their ridings, because there are not very many Liberal MPs out here in the West. Um, about 25% are supporting them, um, are supporting this project. Uh, yeah, I, but, ha- I haven't seen any media reports on that. So uh, yeah. what I have, what I have though, I've seen some liberals that are speaking openly, asking for the government to, to shut down the project. Yeah. And, uh, and they're met by a chorus of MPs, uh, conservative MPs from throughout Western Canada, mm-hmm. actually throughout the whole conservative caucus. They're calling the government to approve. Yeah. And this is, but this is something that, that is really frustrating to me because this is, again, going back to this, uh, it seems almost random what gets approved and what doesn't in Canada because they're currently under construction is a LNG pipeline from Ontario to Saguenay where they are building a LNG port for shipping liquid natural gas out of our country. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been any opposition to this. There hasn't been massive protests. There hasn't been MPs calling for it to be shut down. Uh, same thing with the gold mine in Quebec, uh, Malartique, I believe it's called. 55,000 tons of rock and, and earth are being moved out of this open pit mine every single day. They had to relocate over 200 households just for the transportation route again we don't hear anything about this uh the the large i can't remember the name of the cement plant that was built uh in quebec but it was this massive cement plant and it didn't even have to go undergo the environmental assessment that trans mountain had to go through there seems to be this east-west divide 
and it's it's frustrating and it doesn't make any sense to me uh i mean we also have you know again uh we have uh, uh bombardier out in quebec that it seems like every single time they get themselves into financial trouble they get bailed out by the federal government which again is happening i mean it looks like bombardier is in big trouble again yes and uh and and so i'm just waiting for the day that where there's going to be an announcement of a bailout package for them again and it just seems like how do we keep going around and around in circles with that company uh bailing it out no obviously their business plan doesn't work and uh but companies elsewhere in the country are all allowed to just go bankrupt we've large infrastructure projects and, and energy projects out east they get approved and built, no problems. I mean, you don't hear the Quebec government complaining about this natural gas pipeline running to Saguenay, but they complain about a, about Energy East. If the if the if the uh, oil was going to come from Alberta, they have a big problem with it. And this is this east-west divide. And is Canada as divided as people think it is? I think it is. I think this is probably the worst national unity situation we've had since 1995 when Quebec almost left the country. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, no, that, that there are, there are extreme challenges and, that, and that's really where leadership comes in. Um, you know, we, we see the block uh, has come back in Quebec. Uh, some might say it's for other reasons, but again, let's, let's not beat around the bush. It is a separatist party. That is their ultimate aim. Um, you know, Blanchette, their current leader, uh, who actually, I believe, as environmental minister, I may be wrong on this, but I, I believe actually, you know, he permitted one of the projects you, you, you spoke of when he was uh, a PQ environment minister. Yeah. And so I, I think I raised earlier about uh, New Brunswick, you have coal-fired plants that are receiving a 95% um, um, exemption. You have, um, you know, uh, a, a a SIA project uh, approval uh, by um, a federal uh, agency recommending that the uh, Frontier Mine go ahead. And you have foreign oil that is not subject to the same kind of uh, scrutiny or regulations um, that are, are, are being imported into Canada. Um, in fact, my MP report, I wrote it this morning, is, is on in the, um, the nature, uh, it seems to be an unlevel playing field when it comes to regulatory approvals, um, given the uh, objectives of economic growth and climate change and how provincial and federal, uh, you know, just federalism itself seems to have a potpourri of different policy responses um, to these projects. So look, but at the end of the day, it's all about leadership. Leadership in my mind is one of the most important things a country can have. A leader should be able to take complicated issues get it to the heart of the problem, to be able to see what the national interest is and be able to do it. Canada is a big country. Someone told me one time that Canada doesn't work in theory, but it works well in practice. And so we have to practice being Canadian. We have to practice threading the needle on some of these very difficult issues. And my expectation of any leader is to be able to utilize, analyze the situation, find what that national, inter, nas, national interest is, and then use language 
to paint a picture of why we as a country need to come together behind some things. And we've done that. We, whether it be uh, you know, the sacrifices that we've seen in successive world wars, or even more recently in Afghanistan, Canada contributes. But we, have, we, are, we are a discerning people. And what I would like to see in the leadership of our country is to, to get into, into these, these questions and to get people to get behind them. Look, I said at that talk the other day that uh, I believe the House of Commons is Team Canada on both sides. We have different ideas and any government, particularly a minority one, has to be able to thread that needle and find ways to bring people together. And uh, let's see if this prime minister has that, what it takes. Again, when he, uh, when he has done things like approve the Trans Mountain Pipeline, I have publicly given him credit for that. I've given the, them credit for other things. No, I, but but I, that, I, also, I, I, that also means, though, it's, it's, it's an onus on them to listen for when we are in the right. Yeah. Uh, when we have a good idea. I, I think that the single thing that sticks in my mind, that our biggest challenge in our political system, it's not opportunity. We have lots of opportunity. It is that who is calling out an idea. If an idea, I believe, has merit on its own, it shouldn't be who the messenger is. Yeah, exactly. And that, I think, is something that is uh, quintessentially missing yeah. uh, from our discussions. Yeah. No, it, it, it is. And, I mean, I, like you said, like you've given them uh, uh, credit for doing things that they should have done. Uh, and you're not going to criticize it because they're liberal and you're conservative. Uh, I have given the Trudeau government credit for their handling of the Iranian uh, plane that was shot down yep. that had 63 Canadians or whatever it was on the yes. plane, right? Yes, uh, because it, it's a Canadian tragedy. Yeah, and I, yeah. I thought they handled it very well. Um, they... I, I didn't up until that point. I didn't think they were handling things over there very well. They were, uh, you know, they weren't they weren't backing up the U.S. publicly um, in in their in in the situation. But when that happened, when that plane was shot down, and there were so many Canadians on board, uh, I do I have to give them credit. They did handle that situation very well. Yeah, but I, one thing I, I would just say is is that absolutely supporting families is important but also ensuring that over the long term that Iran is held accountable. Yes. And uh, we can see that even though they've admitted publicly uh, to shooting it down, they have not been cooperative, whether it be on the black box issue or whatnot. And really the international community needs to come down hard on this. Yeah. You, you cannot have, um, you cannot let these things pass. No. You know, rule breakers and ideologues um, and, uh, you know, uh, extreme fundamentalists need to be constrained. Yeah. And that, that is something that, that, that needs, and, and the international community or the rules-based order, as, as uh, Christia Freeland likes to refer to, uh, well, okay, there needs to be a rules-based order. That means there needs to be a response. Mm -hmm. You know, the, you know the, the lack of law is lawlessness, yeah. and we cannot permit that to happen. Now, I, I know time is getting short here, so I just want to touch on the, uh, uh, the leadership race. Um, there's, I think, I think we're supposed to be hearing today or tomorrow if John Baird is going to be in the race or not. 
Um, if he is, that that brings a, a, a definitely an added element to this. Um, he's uh, he is bilingual, um, which we aren't seeing so much of from the other candidates. Uh, uh, Peter McKay had stumbled out of the block saying he was a female candidate uh, in French. Um, but I, obviously his French is probably rusty. He hasn't been using it for the last, uh, I don't know, what's it? Five years. Five years. So, and I, I'm fluent in French and I know that if I don't use it uh, for a few years, I'll, sometimes I'll just sit there with my mouth open thinking, what, what is the word I'm supposed to be using right now? So I can, I can, you know, I can let that slide. Yep. Oh, yep. Uh, but, uh, but John Baird is a, is a, is a character that, that, uh, you know, he's, there were lots of, you know, jokes about him and stuff when he was a, a minister saying he was always angry. Uh, but, uh, he's, I'm excited to see if he joins because he's he's a compelling candidate. No, I, I I've I've uh, served alongside both Peter, Aaron, uh, John, as well as Marilyn, and uh, uh, you know there's a few others that I I've met over the years uh, that have floated their names or or in, attempting to uh, you know become candidates in yeah. this uh, leadership election, and so uh, to me I. I think that what I heard from members last time we did this process was that there was too many people running. Yeah. Uh, I've heard a, a few from a few people that too few are running, and uh, and, and so it's it's uh, it's it's typical uh, where you always are overcorrecting on those things. But look, um, you know, there are there are going to be serious candidates that come forward. We're going to hit a threshold at the end of the month, which will, yeah. you know, whether or not people have some basic fundraising and basic, uh, you know, can you get a thousand signatures? And uh, then we're really going to see the race start. Yeah. And um, someone told me one time that in politics, you can, you can never start early enough, uh, but you can always start today. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so if, uh, if another candidate comes out, I think that that's good for members. I think that competition makes us stronger as a yeah. country and whether that be competition on uh in markets or whether it be competition in political circles uh because uh, people deserve the best yeah now speaking of the best um there's a candidate out of quebec richard descari mm -hmm. that i would personally say is not the best um he's he's got very controversial ideas that seem to be the focal point of his candidacy mm -hmm. uh, with, with regards to uh, gay rights and, and even just the the the, uh, uh, the very definition of being gay, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's a choice which he believes or if it's natural. Um, and also he wants to uh, limit the availability of, of uh, abortions for women. The, as as a conservative myself it's very very frustrating because oh you're the one that just said earlier that we've you, been trying you, you, for, you fight for the uh yeah. you know, for the right for someone to, to speak yeah even but, if you disagree and but the, but and the this, conservative this, party for yes. for a long time has been trying to yep. distance themselves from ideas like that because they're not popular well but you know again this is where national council there's a there's a group called leoc um 
uh, leadership election organizing committee, and they have a um, a process to determine whether or not someone meets the criteria. Yeah. And I've heard arguments on both sides of this. I've heard arguments from 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 people that say, um, you know, we uh, we want uh, to give people choice and. We believe in free speech, and uh, you know, even if we disagree with someone, we sh- we think that they should be able to say their views and mm-hmm. and to hear back from Canadians. Yes, uh, because free speech does not mean, uh, you know, that uh, that there that there won't be, uh, you know, a social rep- rep- repercussion or there won't be a response yeah. from the people you're dealing with. Um, but on on the flip side, though, too, uh, you've raised a lot of legitimate concerns where people are saying, as a party, we are moving in a direction that is in far more mainstream. And so we'll find out what Leoc has to say. Yeah. All I can simply say is, is, is that I would like to see a field of candidates that, that can, um, you know, really demonstrate to the conservative uh, family here in Canada that we have some top talent and that we have a vision for the country. And that vision can't just be, I want to be a leader, right? Yeah. The vision has got to be, Again, for the country, for the party, mm. and uh, I, I look forward to seeing which candidate uh, you know ends up making that case. Yeah, and I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing about ideas because I think the last federal election was very devoid of ideas from all parties. Well, I, I think I think that, that you know what I, what I heard from a lot of people, and look, you know, there there was lots of ideas in in the election, um, but I, I would say that either people found them to be too too uh, small ball or without detail. And so that's that's the challenge. I, I think some people told me at the door quite clearly they weren't happy with any of their options. Yeah. They said, I see leaders that have more ambition for themselves than the country. Mm-hmm. And that's stuck with me. Yeah. As conservatives, we have to have ambition for the country and sell that to the people. Yeah, perfect. Well said. Thank you very much for joining us. I know you're a very busy man, and I really appreciate the time you gave us. No, Lewis, I appreciate being on your show. I look forward to uh, hearing uh, as some of these issues progress. Great. Thank you.